Well, today is Mother's Day, and our sermon today is going to acknowledge the woman who bears the title, the mother of all living, who is the church, Eve, Eve. It's Eve, the mother of all living. But then after a glancing look at her in verse, the first one and a half verses that we're going to read, we'll very quickly leave her behind and focus on her children. Two brothers specifically. Do you have a sibling? What is one word that describes your relationship? Wonderful. Wonderful? <laughs> Roland is an only child. I don't know why he is talking. <laughs> Wonderful. Crazy. Crazy? Yes, I believe that. What? Interesting. Is it like that? Interesting. Is it like that? Okay. Interesting. Okay. Complicated. Yes. Challenging. Inspiring. Uh huh. Did I miss one? Supportive. Yes. Loving. Wonderful. Now, Arlu can speak because she does have siblings, so. Have you ever hated your brother or sister? Sibling relationships are sometimes fraught, and I grew up in a very high squabbling family house with three siblings, and we were not allowed to say the words, I hate. We couldn't say those. But actions speak louder than words. And my brother and I hit each other in the nose with our fists. Mine was on accident. But we both have this bump of, our, of all the siblings. We both have the exact same bump. So we say we gave that to each other in our teenage years. Um, so I'm going to read a poem by my favorite poet, Shel Silverstein that sets the mood for today's passage. His poem is called One Sister for Sale, but since we're talking about brothers today, I, I made the slight editorial change to fit better. So I give you one brother for sale. One brother for sale, one brother for sale, one crying and spying young brother for sale. I'm really not kidding, so who'll start the bidding? Do I hear the dollar, a nickel, a penny? Oh, isn't there, isn't there, isn't there any one kid that will buy this old brother for sale, this crying and spying young brother for sale? Um, actually, this sounds quite a bit like Joseph's story in the, in the book of Genesis. But sibling rivalry didn't begin with Joseph. Titanic, far-reaching, life-changing sibling clashes are built into every single generation of God's chosen people before Joseph, going back to his great-grandfather, Abraham. And if you ever want a case study of dysfunctional uh, generations from one to the next, handing down their dysfunction, you just have to read about Abraham and his descendants. And yet, the heartbreaking chains of generational sibling hatred didn't start there but they go all the way back to the first pair of siblings. Sadly, 
The reason this account resonates today is because it describes the reality of family life no matter what age we live in. Today we're going to read the tragic account of the first pair of brothers, Cain and Abel. So we're starting in chapter 4, verse 1. Now, the man knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of God. Next, she bore his brother Abel. This is the all-too-brief mention of the beginning of motherhood, the first mother, and I would love to have more details. I myself love to hear birth stories and details because they're all different, and I'm just interested in the hours. For some reason, the hours and the labor interest me, the ups and downs of delivery, and I would have loved to hear Eve's story, especially because an increase in her pangs and childbearing, bringing forth children in pain was specifically part of her curse. And I wonder, what would she have to say on that subject? What would she say? We do have her words. I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Now that is the strangest birth announcement <laughs> I have ever heard. That word produced is a play on words with the name Cain. But it's also striking that the normal word for birthing is not used, but rather a word that means creating, making. And it's obvious that the creational theme from the first two chapters is carried forward here. Whereas in the beginning, God created alone. Here Eve participates with God has God's help in creating. She is co-creator with God, is what she is saying. And this is highlighted in her not calling Cain her son, not a baby, not a child, but a man. We don't call baby boys men when they're first born. So this language points back to God who did create and produce a man before. And now Eve has come alongside of God, or rather it's the other way around. God has come alongside of Eve and we hear in Eve's words a tone of gratitude. Giving birth is such a commonplace act. There could be nothing more normal, more natural. But I guess every mother when she sees what her body is creating and when she finally pushes that baby out might frame what has happened or might have the feeling that this is a miracle, a miracle of life. Eve, the first mother, gives words to what many mothers feel. But now we're done with Eve, done with her. We're going on in a verse two. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, for his part, brought the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, puzzling, surprising that God does not accept Cain's offering. We know it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that Abel's was an animal sacrifice and Cain's was a grain sacrifice. Both were perfectly acceptable to God when the law was given later on in Israel's history. 
There is no rationale given for God's actions. And it seems very arbitrary to us. And here again, in this uh, part of Genesis, right at the beginning, we bump up against a knowledge that God has for his actions that are hidden from us. There are creation limits to human knowledge and wisdom. And when we hit those limits, we bump into the inscrutability of God. And at that point, we're to trust God and not overstep those limits. This rejection did not go over too well with Cain, verse four, I mean, verse five. So Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. He's wearing his emotions on his sleeve. His face shows the churning anger inside. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. We're reading this passage today not because it's Mother's Day and this was an account of the first mother. That was just a happy coincidence. But rather, we are in a sermon series entitled The Bible, Our Bible, The Question Book. And the first question in the Bible came from a serpent. The second series of questions came from God. Here God is continuing his questioning but I want you to look for the first human question in the Bible, which is coming up. Now, there's a pause between verse 7 and 8. Cain is angry. Just kind of feel that. God clearly warns him, and Cain can stop to think and process the information. The information from God, which includes the question, if you do well, will you not be accepted? What's the answer to that? Yes. If you do well, will I not accept your sacrifice? Yes, is the answer there. If you harmonize your heart with God, Cain, if you humble yourself, if you come to worship God again, if you just ask God in this conversation you're having right now, well, how can I do well in your sight? How can my offering be acceptable to you? Now, what, wouldn't that have been the perfect first question from a human in the book of the Bible? We could have been proud of that question, what must I do, Lord, to be acceptable to you? Just tell me and I'll do it. And look at God giving Cain a pathway to make his sacrifice acceptable to God. Look at God wanting to accept his sacrifice, rooting for Cain to make a good choice. How often do we as parents watch what our kids are going to do next when they're angry? Root for them to make the good choice. Fix your face, we tell our children in public. Fix your face, Cain, God is telling Cain. Fix your face by fixing your heart. Did he? We're in suspense. Verse 8. Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Another question from God, a question that gets to the heart of the matter. And Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? There it is. The first human question in the Bible. Am I my brother's keeper? What's the answer to that question? Am I my brother's keeper? No. 
You see, you all have Jesus in your life. You have the New Testament. You know the teaching of the law which says love your neighbor. Cain didn't have that. The law, the Old Testament law says love your neighbor. And you know that Jesus just meant love your neighbor. He said your neighbor is the foreign person that you are, are prejudiced against. I mean, he stretched that word neighbor to mean you're practically enemy. And so we know because of Jesus that we are supposed to love, be our brother's keeper. But Cain was asking a question that was going to get him out of trouble before Jesus' teaching, before the law even. And the answer to Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper, is no. See, God should have answered no. It's a deflection. He's trying to turn that question back to God to say it's inappropriate. In the Old Testament, keeping is not what humans do to each other. In the Old Testament, it's God's job to keep humans. And so if God doesn't know where Abel is, God hasn't been doing his job. This is what Cain is implying. Verse 10, and the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Oh my goodness, the imagery. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, that means wandering, east of Eden. The first human question is built on the foundation of a lie. Untold times in his life, Cain could have said, do you know where your brother is? No. Is he in the field? Is he I don't know where he is. But not now. Cain killed his brother and he disposed of his body. And if he did that well, Cain was the only person who knew where his brother was. A lie. Followed, a lie which I don't know where he is, followed by misdirection. Am I my brother's keeping, keeper? And this is a different reaction than his parents. Adam and Eve admitted their sin, though they tried to deflect blame. But Cain lies and denies. To God who sees all, Cain will not confess and he will not accept his punishment. Eve and Adam were talked into sin by the serpent, but Cain will not be talked out of sin by God. Remember that the consequence of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was death. And death does indeed come 
to humans, but not from the hand of God who is well within his rights to judge and punish, but from the hand of one brother to the other. Mankind is the only species in creation that systematically destroys and preys upon itself out of greed and envy, selfish concerns, or denial of its own commonality. Oh my goodness, why are we so awful? Cain was mad at God for not accepting his sacrifice, so he kills his brother. Now, how does that make any sense? But this is a very common pathway for anger. Haven't you noticed that your hot anger leads you to do things that you could not possibly justify under the cold, clear light of logic? And how many times have we lashed out in our anger, not to the person who deserves it, but to someone else instead, and many times anger lands in our family among the people that we say we love the most. So we are not strangers to this dynamic. God described the temptation to sin so vividly, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. We can almost see sin, this wild, dangerous animal looking to pounce, looking for prey. Temptation is out to get us, prowling, stalking. It's right there on the threshold. Why would we put our hand on the knob of the door and open the door and invite that in? And yet you have done this. And yet I have done this. We have invited sin in when its intention is to destroy us. Even when God warned you, and that's emphatic in our, in our verse, you must master sin. We don't have to open the door. There's always an out. Why do we do this? Because this isn't just a story of a murderer. I mean, if it was, we could absolve ourselves I don't imagine anyone here has killed anybody and hidden the body. I'm just not thinking that that's happening. So are we off the hook? It was devastating to me to see so clearly that the seeds that led to the first murder were sown in worship. Did you catch that? Not a land dispute, not a theft of property, not money, not sex, not power. These are the things that drive murderers. It was worship. This happened over a difference in worship. And we don't have to go far at all to find sin driving people who worship. People who worship the one true God. We don't have to look out there at all. We can just look within the church to see that dynamic and how the history of the world would be different if worshipers didn't use their difference in worship as a pretext to sin. How the world and how history would have been written differently. Abel is voiceless in this account, but after his death, his blood cries out to God. 
the voiceless in our world, in our structures and systems of oppression are not voiceless to God. The character of God stays consistent through the entire testimony of all of scripture that God sees, God hears, God cares deeply about injustice. And it's here at the beginning that we see so clearly how injustice is a direct affront to or an assault on God's creation. There's no question of whose side God is on. He's always on the underside, on the side of the powerless. There's a Hebrew word, goel, and it means vindicator. And in ancient Israel, it was the duty of the next of kin of the murdered person to avenge his death. So God reveals himself as Abel's goel. God is always the next of kin to every victim of injustice. And yet, and yet, and this is the shock of God's character. God's concern for the innocent is matched only by his care for the sinner. And it's hard to wrap our minds around this. Cain does not accept God's judgment. He who killed Abel, he who took away Abel's life says, oh, but now somebody may kill me. Oh. Oh, cry me a river. I have no sympathy for the murderer. Cain didn't listen to Abel's pleas. I hope someone does kill you, Cain. It's exactly what you deserve. An eye for an eye. Give him the death penalty. Oh, I can see the protests, the signs now outside the courtroom where God is handing down the sentence. So what does God, the almighty judge, decide? Cain will have to go away from the presence of the Lord. And just feel the heaviness of that judgment. He has to leave the presence of the Lord. He will be a wanderer. The soil which Cain had successfully farmed previously would not yield an abundance for him anymore. But then God gives Cain undeserved, unexpected protection. And the mark of Cain, which is mostly thought of as a curse, to mark him as a murderer, kind of like that scarlet letter, but that's all wrong. It's a mark to show that Cain is under God's protection and you better not mess with him. This is really the first covenant that God makes with, with a human, although it's not really called a covenant, but it's a promise by God that God will not let him go completely and he will not abandon Cain to his justly merited fate. And even when Cain is far away from the presence of God, God still protects Cain. This is a covenant made with a sinful man, someone said, here lies the supreme miracle and mystery of grace. God becomes a goel not for the innocent victim alone, but even for the murderer. God has revealed so much more of himself through the millennia, through the centuries ever since. We know so much more about God than Cain knew. But our struggles to trust are the same as his. Our struggles with sin and anger are the same as his. But God's core character, that he stands on the side of the victim, but also shows mercy to the offender, shines out from the very beginning.
Now, I didn't tell you why Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was not. The New Testament does give us that answer. You're going to have to look that up for yourself. But I do want to read another New Testament reference to the death of Abel in Hebrews 12, 24. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood cries out too, as Abel's blood cried out. And someone said, Abel's blood for vengeance pleaded to the skies, but the blood of Jesus for our pardon cries. What a savior. What a savior we have who breaks the vicious cycles of violence, the chains of generational dysfunction that have imprisoned us into making the same mistakes of our ancestors. What a savior. Mother's Day is a day of joy, but also a day of sadness, a day of loss. No family is perfect. And death intrudes. So it seems fitting today that we don't worship mothers who are imperfect, but rather we worship God. Isaiah 66, 13 says, as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. And all mothers need comforting from their heavenly mother. Receive God's love today. And all children need comfort from their heavenly mother. Receive God's love today. Let's bow our heads. Oh Lord, we do need your love. We need an abundance of it. We need an overflowing of it. We need it to fulfill our, to fill up our reservoirs so that we are able to love well and often. And we need it for our own inner healing and for our own security. We need you, God, our Heavenly Mother, today. And I pray, God, for anyone who is caught in these generational chains that with your power we would be able to break those chains that we would be able to turn to our vindicator to our merciful savior and that you would give us the power and the strength and the wisdom from on high to work out love in our world instead of hate. In Jesus' name, amen. We meet in Altadena every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific, both in the sanctuary and on YouTube. Most other events will be starting up soon, but if you need prayer now, please reach out to us at altabapprayer.com at AOL.com. And again, as always, we pray God's blessings on you this week.